Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Good morning, Marjorie. Happy March. How are you? It's spring. It's coming. We promise it's coming. I love March, partly because it's Persian New Year, which we've talked about before, but also Stanza. This year, we're both getting to go at the same time, which is really exciting. Exactly. I mean, you'll be up there for most of the festival, won't you, in your um, role as deputy chair? Yeah, which is really exciting. That's new for me. So, But you know what? I would be there anyway, so it doesn't feel like a role as much as an excuse to have to be there for a big chunk of time. But I'm so pleased you're coming with me for part of it. We will be seeing lots of poetry. We will also, I'm sure, be swimming. But can I make a little plug for our own event this year? Oh, definitely. It's not our own own event, but we are going to be reading some, or I'm going to be reading some open book work at an event at four o'clock on the 11th, Friday the 11th, Poems in Transit. So we hope that you'll all log in and join us because I'm pretty sure that event's going to be available online. And you can also buy tickets and attend in person. We can't wait for that, but also all the other terrific poetry offerings it's like a feast for me i love book festivals we love book festivals but as poets it's like every single event is something that i want to go to and the trick and so many people have said to me this year the trick is deciding which ones because they're often two things at the same time that you want to see and i think for me that's the mark of a good festival but we hope that we'll see some of you out there too please come and say hello if you see the two of us shuttling between events and got our noses stuck into the latest version of someone's poems But today, our March story is by one of our lead readers, Tom Murray. Tom leads the group from Eyemouth, but he also supports the work we do in HMP Dumfries and is the prison programme lead reader down there. So we've got a story from him today and a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Yeah, and it's on the theme of barriers this month, so... I don't know whether we're overcoming them or recognizing them, but I guess we'll decide by the end of this podcast and you can decide for yourself by the end of the month. Shall I make a start on the story? Yeah, please do. Grass is Greener by Tom Murray. Just another day, a ray or two of sun, lines of rain and wind swirling the yard like the farmer's breath as he throws out the seed on the harsh ground. Just another day, except that it isn't. If you look carefully enough, and not distracted by the rattle of cows inside the huge barns that dominate the yard, or by the tractor impatiently coughing diesel, and the farmer cursing the world for being the world, something, so much noise, and the repetitive, greedy peck of the chickens. There it is. One of the chickens stands still amongst her circling, hungry companions. Hardly, it seems, aware of the seed scattered at her feet. What is she looking at? Follow her gaze and the open yard gate. What is she doing now? But following her own gaze one slow step at a time, with occasionally a backwards glance at the rest of the oblivious chickens. She has reached the gate and stands on its border with the road beyond. No one has noticed. The other chickens still gorging themselves, the farmer still cursing and heading in for his breakfast. Now, if you travel down that road every day, or even the occasional day, 
You might have seen that chicken before, standing there, or more likely looking as if it was dancing on the spot, its head stretching to glimpse the field beyond the wall on the other side of the road. You might catch its eye focusing on the gap in the wall where the stones had worn away and crumbled. Maybe you wondered if it was wondering about the grass is greener. Or you might have concluded that it was a dance of fear at the roar and suddenness of the cars on the road. You might have thought about shouting, run, take a chance, go for it. And then carried on, not giving it another second of your time. On this day, if you had roared past the open gate, you might have caught, out of the corner of your eye, another chicken, slowly and carefully joining the first at the gate. This one had been watching all along, even while peck pecking at the seed, watching to see if there really is an invisible barrier at the gate's border, hoping that the first chicken will make the leap before it follows. The first chicken, though, only dances at the border and stares across at the gap in the wall and the hint of green beyond. Then the second chicken gets too close and the dance pushes it against the border. It feels a rush of fear as one leg then two stumble across the border and onto the road. The dancing stops. There is no invisible barrier. Shall we stop there? Yeah. I am not a massive fan of chickens in general. <laughs> I have to say, I'm quite timid around them. They're quite pecky and they don't engender a lot of empathy in me. But Tom's writing did actually make me feel quite sympathetic towards the chickens in the story. Well, I, did, I mean, it started making me think about, you know, that idea of how we want to give animals human qualities, right? You know, it's that kind of projecting of our wishes or dreams onto animals. And it's really tricky, you know, as a writer, it's really tricky to write about animals when there aren't very many humans in the story. It's really e not easy, but it's a lot easier to write about human interactions with animals because that's what we understand. But when you take a human out of the story, as you do here, and then it's just about the animals, he's done a really good job of not telling us what the chickens are thinking, but giving us enough to go on that we are curious and following them with our imaginations. I think that's a really tricky and cleverly done thing here. And the way he does it, by bringing a you passing in a car, it doesn't make you feel in any way that he's insulted the chickens or imposed his will on the chickens in any way. I mean, and then there's this, this question, so part of it is he's talking about chickens, and then it makes you think about animals in captivity. And, and then, of course, as humans, we want to think, we use that to think about humans in captivity, how we behave when we're offered freedoms. And so part of me, of course, wonders whether so far it's a story about chickens, but it's a metaphor for those of us going about our daily lives. I don't know. Did you think it was entirely about animals or were you doing that very human thing of projecting humanness onto the animals? Yeah, I mean, definitely thinking like, what's Tom saying to us about the human condition? What's Tom saying about our everyday life? But I love that first paragraph as well, where he brings us right down. So we start with a really wide view of the just another day. 
and the sun and the weather. And then slowly, slowly, he draws our gaze really carefully in until we're just looking at the chickens. Almost cinematic in that kind of wide angle and then right on down. What I love is the grumbling farmer because, you know, so far in this story, the, the carrot, as it were, or the golden thing that we're all aiming for is freedom. But the the one thing that's got freedom is the farmer and he's grumbling, but possibly he doesn't either, you know, in the sense that he's got to be there feeding the animals. But from the chicken's perspective, the farmer's free and yet he's grumbling. There's your grass is always greener thing. And he's probably thinking, ah, to be an animal and be fed and not have a care in the world is interesting, isn't it? Here's the question. I love that description of the second one watching. It's almost like naughty children, you know, one child does something naughty and the second one's working out whether they get away with it you know it's like all right if you're doing it I could do that I think there's a bravery element as well as the naughty element the second chicken might want to be the one at the gate but needs the first chicken there to give it the bravery and the camaraderie that will let it overcome its reluctance and that's true of all of us isn't it so in that way it is quite similar to humans and I guess you know my question my always thinking from the perspective of a writer is how is a writer do you know what that second chicken is thinking and in this sense he never tells us so he's done it very cleverly and deftly but we do you know want to know why that first chicken isn't making a run for it But we've talked before about whether it's appropriate or right or whether writers should take on the voice of a person to describe an experience that that writer hasn't lived through. You know, how you reconcile getting a story out there against actually how can we presume to have had an experience, particularly if it's a traumatic experience, and write about it without having the lived experience of that person. And I guess in a way that you could carry that on and apply that same sort of questioning to animals. You know, what gives us the right to presume what the chicken or the the animal, you know, really what you were saying earlier, is thinking. And, you know, Tom's really avoided having to deal with that issue in the way that he's chosen to write this piece. Interestingly, I've heard it from people who write about animals, but also love animals. You know, someone I can think of who has, keeps horses, really objects to other writers giving animals too much of a voice. It's probably not dissimilar to taking on a voice that you shouldn't, as if in some way we could empathize with animals. It's almost a step away from further beyond the idea of writing about a traumatic experience you haven't had. How do we even presume to imagine what animals think? Because they're so different from ourselves. I have a lot of sympathy with that view. But then I think if you take that to its final conclusion, something as simple as Black Beauty, you would say that shouldn't have been written. But I remember loving that book. And I was just trying to work out whether there's an exception for children's work. You know, whether in some ways you'd want children to have that. You know, because a lot of writing for children, although, you know, we, we always say writing for children is equally good and in, in fact more difficult often than, than writing for adults. But you kind of want to encourage children to start empathizing. You know, whether that's with other people or animals or you don't want to give them that barrier, which is we only have the capacity to imagine certain things. Whereas as adults, I think it's more about respectfulness. And we, we, we talk about that when we're thinking about taking on the voice of someone who has such a different lived experience. There is a real counter to that, which is it's the job of the writer to do that very thing. You know, if you can only write about what you know, which is what they say for writers, we wouldn't be writing very interesting stories. Quite often it's when you're writing about things that you don't know about, you're pushing your imagination 
imagination to the possibilities for humanity where the writing becomes interesting, but also controversial and difficult. And also as well, if you're doing that, you're encouraging other people to become aware of the story of the person you're writing about. Yeah. And we're, I mean, I think what is reading and art for, except asking for empathy, really trying to pull us out of ourselves and um, whether that's asking us to you know, embody somebody else or at least listen to and try and understand something that's different than ourselves. Or I suppose another front is learning something new about ourselves and possibly that's by being exposed to something that we think isn't like us. wonder if we should read on and find yeah. out. There's not much of this story left. Now again, if you can understand chicken language, then the second chicken could have been saying, come on, as it ventures further out onto the road. If that's what it says, then a shake of its head from the first gives the answer. A screech of a warning confirms its decision as a car roars down the road, the second chicken directly in its path. And I suppose more decisions are made on the spur of the moment or with the spur of danger than curiosity or hope. Maybe all are mixed in so much that you can never separate them out. The second chicken makes a decision without thinking, maybe only following something deep inside that had risen to the surface and dashes to the other side. The car turns up the road and splatters the second chicken with stones and fear and wondering, is it too late to go back? When the dust settles, the first chicken stands, no longer dancing, at the border or the gate. No chicken language this time, just a look between them as the farmer emerges from the farmhouse and heads for the barn and the restless cows. Maybe they sense that it isn't an everyday day. There's still time before the farmer looks across and catches the chicken standing at the gate. But both chickens know that decisions have been made. For the first chicken, the moment has come and gone and she turns back into the group and pecks at what remains of the seed. When she turns to glance at the border of the gate, the second chicken is disappearing through the gap in the wall to the field beyond. Oh no, I wanted the first chicken to escape too. So the second chicken has made it out. Yeah, the second chicken, who was the watcher, turns out to be the one who's got the gumption to go for it. It's like Escape from Alcatraz, but with chickens. At one point, I thought the farmer was going to see him and come and see the chicken and come and um, pick it up and put it back where it started. Quite often when you plan something and you, you think you're going to go for it, you get to the border and think, mm, actually, it's not really what I wanted. So I, I love that line about how sometimes things are made out of curiosity often makes a swings things in a way that planning doesn't. And the experience is different than it would have been had you planned it. That sort of sense of going with the flow and making the decision in the moment and... There's a real ex exhilaration in that idea of like, you know, oh, I'm doing this thing rather than, oh my God, I was thinking I was going to do this thing and now I can do this thing and do I want to do this thing? You know, I think it's a completely different train of thought for humans, whether that was the train of thought for the chickens, who knows, but it definitely feels like you ride a wave when you make a spur of the moment decision and, and there's 
less of an opportunity to turn back as it were and were you like me when you read that line the car turns up the road and splatters the second chicken yeah did you think it had all gone horribly wrong until the sentence continues with stones and fear and wonder yeah the word use of the word splatter tom is unfair because i don't think of splattering with stones but it, it does the job of making us relieved that it's onto the chicken and not the chicken itself I did think that was a bit naughty of Tom. (laughs) But I do feel like the danger emboldens one and frightens the other. You know, obviously I'm worried about what else is out there in the world for the second chicken. You know, how far the second chicken is going to make it before. How is is a chicken going to figure out what it needs to eat, you know, when something isn't feeding it? And the foxes, as you say, and all those sorts of things. But for a brief moment, I'm pleased for it having made it out of the farmyard. Maybe it's just going on a day trip and I'll come back in the evening. (laughs) It's nice, cozy, safe chicken house. Yeah, we want things to be happy and tidy, but actually things don't often turn out like that for lost chickens, do they? But also that's that the grass and, you know, there's all these sort of things that we often say, but the grass is always greener. Is it? You know. Yeah. Once you get there, is the reality just as similar to the reality that you've left? Yeah. And I mean, it, for me, in lots of ways, it also... It can be the whole story could be a metaphor for the refugee situation and those, you know, choosing to make a run for it and get out and crossing the road of danger. You know, that's a real, it could be a real metaphor for those crossings that really dangerous crossings that people make. And we still, you know, the unknown is really what's out there in terms of, you know, being sure it's going to be okay. And what do they say? The devil, you know, it's better than the devil you don't. Yeah, better the devil, you know. So, you know, all these kind of adages come into mind with this story. But I feel, I'm I'm left feeling sorry for the first chicken, which I guess shows me as a human where I end up in this story. I feel sorry for the one who decided not to go for it, that it's an opportunity missed, you know. So I'm not sure I agree with that adage of the devil, you know. Like maybe it's better to go out and see. But I think it depends on whether you're an optimist or not, or whether you think the world is out to get you or everyone. And I definitely don't. Yeah, and I think as well it depends a bit on what your aim and focus is. If your preference is to live a lengthy, safe, secure time or to have a more adrenaline-filled, exciting experience that potentially is shorter. And I think each of us as a human falls on a different place on on the scale in relation to that. I remember sort of um, being alive to that difference when I was quite young because I had a grandpa who was great fun, quite a wild character in terms of his, he was always up for kind of an adventure and doing lunatic things, you know, taking my mum water skiing in the middle of winter, you know, cracking the ice and jumping in things. Not that that's crazy now, mind you, but, you know, just doing wild adventures. He was known as the kind of guy who would be like, let's go do it and 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 he was also a big drinker in a fun way, you know, it was a real outgoing guy. But he used to always say quality, not quantity. Now, mind you, he lived to be in his 90s, but just by luck, I think. But, you know, he used to always say, ah, you know, it's about enjoying what you've got rather than living a long and boring life. And I remember thinking that over as a little girl, thinking, really? Yes, that sounds like such a good idea that actually you want to make sure you have fun with the years you've got rather than trying to eke them out. But as I crossed a big barrier myself this year, I I think I probably would still take the same stance. But you know, as you get older, I could see changing that viewpoint thinking, Ooh, I'd rather be, I'd rather be around longer than, you know, doing wild things. And I'm not that old yet. Come back to me in 10 years. Yeah. And I think as well, I wonder if your decision in relation to that 
also relates a little bit to your place in the family. You know, I, I am the oldest of three girls and I vividly remember it when I was younger when we went down to the beach we lived by the seaside with my dad and you took the car down a sort of sandy track to the car park right at the end and it was on private land and my dad would let us sit on his knee and steer um the car down this um bumpy track now he was obviously in control of the pedals the gears you know we literally were on his knee with our hands on the steering wheel and there were two sort of car tire tracks it wasn't even as if you could really drive out of them but I used to hate it and be terrified and and my mind would be racing about all you know driving off the dunes into the sea and all the rest of it whereas my two little sisters used to squeal with complete delight and often think back to that and think god I wish I'd enjoyed it a bit more I would now but you know as a child I was always the one going oh I'm not sure we should oh I don't know so I think I'm the opposite I think I've got more harem scarum as I've got older yeah and I think I probably do too but then you know I had quite a difficult like you know crossings myself as a little girl so I was probably all for playing things safe and now I think you know, as we get to a certain age, we realize that you should enjoy, you should enjoy what you've got, you know, whatever it is. Um, so I'm all for adventures, you know, and also, of course, our children are growing up. So, you know, when, if you'd caught us 10 years ago, we would have thought, oh, best to stick with the, where you know there's food. And now we're like, off you go into the green world, go and enjoy think of what you're missing so I think probably you're right it, it's where you fall in your family maybe but also where you fall where you catch a person in their lifetime and I don't you know I love that idea was the idea that there might have been a barrier you know that invisible barrier was there one and I guess for you know for me the barrier is your own there was of course a barrier and the barrier is your own willingness to cross it yeah so while up until sort of halfway through the story I'm thinking you know, there's nothing, the chickens are wondering whether there's something there. But actually, of course, there is. It's their own gumption, you know, whether, you know, or their own willingness to cross over something, that the unknown. So I love that kind of, the way he's drafted that in there for us to be thinking about barriers. But in fact, it's ourselves that are, are our own stumbling blocks. Shall we move on to the poem now? Yeah. So it's The Caged Skylark by Gerard Manley Hopkins. As a dear gale skylark scanted in a dull cage, man's mounting spirit in his bone house, mean house, dwells, that bird beyond the remembering his free fells. This in drudgery, day labouring out life's age, though aloft on turf or perch or poor low stage, both sing sometimes the sweetest, sweetest spells, yet both droop deadly sometimes in their cells, or ring their barriers in bursts of fear or rage. Not that the sweet fowl, song fowl, needs no rest. Why, hear him, hear him, babble and drop down to his nest, but his own nest, wild nest, no prison. Man's spirit will be flesh-bound when found at best, but unencumbered, meadow-down, is not distressed. For a rainbow footing, it nor he, for his bones risen. 
Oh, wow. We need an entire podcast to un... Totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a sonnet to start, so... Yeah, we've got that far. We've got that far. We know that he was a religious man. Yep. Um, and that he often wrote about nature, I think. So definitely see that sort of God, nature, faith, nature combination in this one. And is the caged skylark that idea of our souls? I think so, yeah. That bone house. Yeah, it's a beautiful image, isn't it? And that somehow this is drudgery, day laboring out life sage. You know, this is the drudgery and that we, and I mean, if you're a religious person, you know, the idea is that this is the drudgery and that a freedom to soar comes after. Yeah. Yeah, that the afterlife is the reward. Although, do we see that there's still moments of joy? You know, both sing sometimes the sweetest. Is yeah. he recognizing that in life you can still find moments of joy amongst the drudgery or the imprisonment? Yeah, I feel like it's a, it, it's a bit like harking back to Tom's story. It's a bit both chickens and one. You know, there are moments of real freedom and there are moments of real joy amidst the drudgery which we all recognize right I mean um, yeah life has its you know I keep saying this to my teenagers you know about when they talk about jobs and things I keep saying even if you absolutely love your job there will be part of it that's drudgery you know there is literally no job that every single day is you know all exciting and challenging and whatever and that's true of life right even if you have the most wonderful life part of it is drudgery Deciding what to have for tea. Yeah, exactly. Unless some of you out there don't have, we'd love to hear from you if you have no drudgery. Yeah, or a job that you love every second of. Now, I have to say we both love our open book rules. Love, love, love. But I do not love doing all the compliance and application writing and accounting and all the rest of it. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's what I, that's exactly the example I give them. I love my job. It's a job, where we, you know, we, Claire and I created together. We love what we do. And yet there's a part of it for both of us that's, you know, that needs to be done, but we would choose not to do it. So there you are. And I think that's true of day-to-day life is um, part of it feels caged. I mean, with the very fact that we need to eat, you know, and we need to have clean sheets and um, have clean clothes and brush our teeth, you know, the, the very definition of, you know, what we need to survive is also involves some Drudgery. Now, the reality is, if you're lucky, you know, a big chunk of your life isn't that, you know, that you can, you have somewhere. I mean, we go back from, if you go back to hunter gatherers, all of their life will have been that, you know, so as modern people, we've moved away from that. We have the opportunity to do things that aren't terrible all the time or boring all the time or life keeping all the time. But yeah. What does it mean both droop deadly sometimes in their cells? Is that that moment where you're exhausted? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Or you just almost give up, you know, and need to recharge. In contrast with those moments where you have a complete meltdown because you're just overwhelmed or, you know, rage at the machine. And it goes from that to not that the sweet fowl song fowl needs no rest. Even the, even the skylark needs rest is what it's saying. Even that freedom, you know, requires a rest. Um, you know, listen to him drop into his nest. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's contrasting, isn't it, between dropping into the nest where it's a wild nest 
and it's a nest of its own making and and resting in a cage in a dull cage which is a prison and th- and that's what he's i think that's where i, I part ways with hopkins because he's talking about man's spirit being flesh bound as in a cage and i you know i i actually think that's not right for me the body is a an amazing thing and yes it fails us and yes it gets ill and yes we have to tend it but also it it allows us to do so much you know i mean you and i is um wild swimmers that we are you know get in freezing cold water and recover and climb up mountains and you know it, it, the body can do incredible things i have so much more respect for it than treat saying that it's a cage yeah and i i think that maybe is his extremely strong religious conviction that almost feels that this time on earth for him is a waiting game and you know that's missing out on a lot to take that view yeah and i wonder if it's a time thing too so you know years ago you and i would have been old maidens or old ladies um but you know now someone said this to me this week who was 60 or was about to be 60 and said in our parents generation that's time to wrap up you know and retire and all those sorts of things but actually the reality is at 60 now we're doing all the things you could do in your 20s you know we're all climbing mountains and running marathons and going to our yoga classes or pilates or whatever it is we want to do in fact we can do all do it on zoom so you know age is much more relative i think i mean of course as you get older you can slow down but yeah, for generations ago, it would have been a different thing, I think. And the body, we didn't have all the ways to heal it that we do now. So maybe at times it did feel like a burden. So I'm letting him off the hook a little, but I definitely don't agree with him. I don't see the body as a, I see it as a, maybe a tool that can help us get what we need, you know, as long as we treat it well. And I don't always treat it well, I should say. <laughs> Too many glasses of wine, but I do, you know, I'm I'm aware of the fact that it needs tended and needs looked after so that it allows me to do all those adventures that we were talking about. And I think a really good fit as well with the idea of barriers and whether they are self-imposed or physical or mental. Yeah, and that idea of the body or the spirit as a barrier. And of course, we're talking about ourselves here as able-bodied people, but that's not true for everyone, you know, and it's not true for some, you know, some of our very dear friends. So, it's a real point of privilege that we're, or that I was just talking about the body as a, as a tool because I, I am able, but that's not, that's not true for everyone. So in some ways others might relate to this poem in a way that, that I don't, but you're right. The, the idea of the body as a barrier, whether that's like Hopkins for faith or religion or Nirvana or whatever you want to call it, or not is a really interesting concept. Um, whereas I think Tom's story is really about courage or bravery for me. But we'd love to know what you think out there because um, I think between them, they both include birds, but they're all both about barriers as well. I think that's all we've got for today, Marjorie. It's been lovely hanging out with you for uh, chatting through the story and poem. And thanks to you all out there for letting us be in your years again. We'll be back with you in April and you can keep up with all that's going on at Open Book on our website in the meantime or by signing up to our newsletter. Yeah, and thanks to Tom for for this wonderful story and for all the chat that it engendered. See you in April.